So Leviticus 16, verse 1, reading to verse 10. The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron, when they drew near before the Lord and died. And the Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron, your brother, not to come at any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat that is on the ark, so that he may not die. For I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat. But in this way, Aaron shall come into the holy place with a bull from the herd for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. He shall put on the holy linen coat and shall have the linen undergarment on his body. And he shall tie the linen sash around his waist and wear the linen turban. These are the holy garments. He shall bathe his body in water and then put them on. And he shall take from the congregation of the people of Israel two male goats for a sin offering and one ram for a burnt offering. Aaron shall offer the bull as a sin offering for himself and shall make atonement for himself and for his house. Then he shall take the two goats and set them before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Aaron shall cast lots over the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other lot for Azazel. And Aaron shall present the goat on which the lot fell for the Lord and use it as a sin offering. But the goat on which the lot fell for Azazel shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement over it, that it may be sent away into the wilderness to Azazel. Great. Well, uh, I'm going to pray for Adam, uh, but before I do that, I'm just going to invite him up. Adam's been uh, doing the Cornhill Bible teaching course. So you're Halfway through second year of that, is that right, Adam? That's right, yeah, halfway Great. through the second year. Do you want to just share a little bit, for those who maybe aren't familiar with you, what the course is, what, what that involves? Uh, yeah, it's a, it's a course to equip people to preach and teach the Bible uh, in different settings, whether that's preaching like today or teaching leading small groups uh, or just even one-to-one if, uh, if that's your heart. And um, yeah, I'm, the second, I'm in the second year. I'm doing it over four years as I learn slowly and I'm going to do it over four instead of two. Um, but that means that I can uh, get even more preaching practice in, which is, which is cool. Uh, yeah. Great, yeah. fantastic. And uh, we were uh, talking about this the other day, just uh, that I bet you weren't thinking you'd be teaching Leviticus. About three years ago, you became a Christian, is that right? That's right, yeah, yeah. no, I didn't think I'd be teaching Leviticus. Uh, I chose this, by the way, Apple didn't force me to do Leviticus. As a, <laughs> some kind of, uh, you know, cruel starting position. <laughs> thanks for pointing that out, that's yeah. good, good stuff. Well, let me pray for you as you, uh, we look at that together. Our Father, we thank you so much for Adam. Uh, for the good work that you are doing in his life. And we thank you for your word. We thank you for the blessing it is to be able to gather around it. We thank you that all scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. And so we pray for Adam as he teaches your word now that you would minister to us by your spirit. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Let me just pray really quickly as well before we we go into this. Uh, Lord, thank you for the chance to uh, meet again today. Um, Help us to uh, take from this sermon and from your scripture what it is that we need to feel encouraged uh, to move forward throughout the week. Help me now as I share to be clear and concise and uh, and please just be with us as we we try to understand uh, the message that is in Leviticus 16. In Jesus' name, amen. 
So if I ask the Christians in the room, uh, which book of the Bible is your favorite, um, you know, which one do you want to sit down and have a nice cup of hot chocolate with on a weekend? I doubt many people will be shouting, give me Leviticus. Um, it's full of uh, various different laws. It's 27 chapters long. It's lots of animal sacrifices and religious ritual that seems so remote from our way of life and how we relate to God today. Um, these laws we don't fully understand and we never really perform them uh, when it comes to the rituals. Leviticus 2's only got two, uh, sorry, Leviticus only got two stories in it, uh, and both those stories end up in the death of those described. But the truth is we think Leviticus is a bit of a slog. Um, it's a bit of a waste of a time for us today, and it's a bit dry. It's a bit like uh, you know, trying to drink a cup of sand sometimes. And I think this is something which we, we can really um, understand is not the case. If we just scratch beneath the surface, we'll find that actually it's a really strong contender to be one of the most dynamic and exciting books in the Old Testament. I hope that we can see a little bit of that as we go through the passage today. Uh, but first, I just want you to imagine that you're at the bottom of the Royal Mile, uh, and that you've been invited to a white tie event at Edinburgh Castle in the presence of the king, except that the, the entire Royal Mile has been turned into a coal mine, uh, and you have to navigate through all the narrow tunnels and scramble over mountains of coal uh, in your perfectly white attire, in order to reach the king and be seen as presentable in his company. How will you possibly present yourself to the king without your white attire, getting covered in smudges, in stains, and in soot? Just keep that question locked in the back of your mind as we go through this. <clears throat> so the book of Leviticus answers this most foundational question. How can a sinful and flawed people enjoy intimate fellowship with a flawless and perfectly holy God? Let me give you a quick overview um, on the story. We've been going through Genesis over the past few weeks. And in Genesis, after Adam and Eve are cast out of Eden and the chains on the gates of Eden have gone rusty, we find that God's been forming a nation of his very own uh, through uh, Abraham, so, which he made a special covenant with, which is a, a relationship marked by promises. Um, he makes it to this man, Abraham, who despite his occasional unfaithfulness to God, God kept his promises and remained faithful to him. Then Exodus comes along. Chapters 1 to 15, God rescues his people uh, from slavery through Moses in Egypt. Chapters 16 to 24, we get a, a sense of the awesome holiness of God. Exodus 20, verse 18 19 says, Now, when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet at the mountain smoking, uh, the people were afraid and trembled. And they stood far off and said to Moses, You speak to us and we'll listen, but don't let God speak to us lest we die. God was so holy, so perfect and pure that the Israelites rightly feared for their lives if they were to get too close to the awesomeness of God's presence. But this unimaginably holy God promised to come and dwell with his chosen people, actually to come and move into the neighborhood. And the book of Leviticus is all about how God could do that. How could a perfectly holy God come and set up home and dwell amongst his people is answered in these pages. And so as the Israelites hear this and remember the awesome power of God on the mountain and how afraid they were when they saw um, his perfect presence, even from a considerable distance away, 
And then they see the moving van pull into the center of their camp, and they have to grapple with the fact that God's just moved right into the center of town. They once again are forced to ask that question. How can a sinful and flawed people enjoy intimate fellowship with a flawless and perfectly holy God? The place that God dwelled within the Israelites, uh, within the camp, was called the Tent of Meeting or Tabernacle. Um, we should see a picture pop up behind to give you a rough idea. That's definitely not it. We'll get there in a second. It'll pop up. Uh, but this was God's throne room. And at the center of it sat the Ark of the Covenant, uh, which held the stone tablets containing the Ten Commandments. As we edge closer to chapter 16 and fly over the first chapters of Leviticus, we can, we can see a series of instructions to the Israelites on how to properly present offerings in a way that was pleasing and honoring to the Lord. And through these sacrificial offerings, God gives them a way to worship before his presence in the Holy of Holies. Chapter 8 to 10 instruct them how to ordain priests and how to worship God in the tabernacle. And chapters 11 to 15 instructs on how to diagnose impurity. So with that said, let's read chapter 16, verses 1 to 2. The, more, the, uh, the Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron, and when they drew near before the Lord and died. And the Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron your brother not to come at any time into the holy place, inside the veil, before the mercy seat that is on the ark, so that he may not die. These two verses are framing why the rest of chapter 16 is here. And so we must ask, uh, what happened to the two sons of Aaron? Keep a finger in chapter 16, just go back to chapter 10, verse 1 and 2. <clears throat> we read, Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, uh, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. The eldest of Aaron's four sons, Nadab and Abihu, had foolishly, and some commentators suggest in a state of drunkenness, attempted to offer something uh, that which the Lord had not commanded, at a time the Lord had not instructed, in the holiest place that the Lord dwelled, the Holy of Holies. Now, both these sons were in the line of the high priest Aaron, so they were no ordinary Levites, uh, but they were chosen to have an authoritative role, which made any wrong they committed all the more serious. So we jump back to chapter 16, verses 1 and 2. Tell Aaron, your brother, not to come at any time into the holy place inside the veil, before the mercy seat that is on the ark, so that he may not die. Now, maybe you're here today and you're curious about who the God of the Bible really is. Um, maybe you understand more about what he's really like. And the first thing you hear today is a story of God sending fire out to kill these two brothers when they tried to draw near before the Lord. Maybe as a Christian you hear this uh, and it makes you feel pretty uncomfortable, don't know what to do with it. So maybe the best thing to do is to sort of close the chapter on Leviticus and jump to more familiar ground. I get that reaction, the temptation to do so, um, but I would just encourage us just to sort of really focus on this for a little bit today. It's clear we're thousands of years removed uh, from the culture of this ancient Near East. Maybe we can grasp a tiny portion of the disrespect and offense 
of what these two brothers did, though, by noting that the tabernacle was like the Lord's palace. Uh, This is where he sat enthroned on the mercy seat of the Lord's ark. Now, in chapter 16, the words mercy seat appear seven times. So what is it? Here's a picture of the mercy seat. The lid, or mercy seat, had two cherubim or angels on each side with their wings stretched out towards the center of the mercy seat. It was the Lord's throne. It was the holiest place within his throne room, and it was where the Lord would symbolically rest on top of this mercy seat in a form of a cloud. This was the nuclear core of God's holy presence on earth. Nadab and Abihu had not only come to the Lord's uh, palace unannounced, but they actually tried to barge into the very throne room of the heavenly king without an invitation. If you remember that question I asked at the beginning about getting invited to Edinburgh Castle for that white tie event by the king, imagine instead of coming on the day of your invitation, you turned up a week before at midnight in jeans and a t-shirt, and you attempted to barge into the most intimate room of the king at the very heart of the castle. How many feet into the castle's grounds do you think you would get before being shot by his guards? A place that you could have stood at the invitation of the king is now a place where you may very well die for being an unauthorized presence at an unauthorized time in an inappropriate place. In fact, to approach a king in the ancient Near East in this disrespectful way was punishable by death due to his utter lack of respect for the king and his position. So we can see from both an historical and even on our modern day an example of how such actions could lead to such consequences. So how much more arrogant and dangerous and disrespectful is it to have the attitude that these two brothers had towards the king of all kings in the most holiest place that he dwells? But there's something else going on here that is at the very heart of why these two brothers and every other Israelite I cannot draw near to God in his tent of meeting. It's also the reason Nadab and Abu lost their lives. And this is summed up in one word. Sin. Sin is considered a dirty word, and the culture today says, do not utter that word in our presence. And there's an irony to this, because it's the dirtiness of sin that's keeping the Israelites from standing in the very presence of a perfectly clean and holy God. See, the Israelites at the time uh, understood acutely an aspect of sin that I'm afraid that we are in danger of easily forgetting. Read with me verses 3 and 4. But in this way Aaron shall come into the holy place, with a bull from the herd for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. He shall put on the holy linen coat, and he shall have the linen undergarment on his body, and he shall tie the linen sash around his waist and wear the linen turban. And these are the holy garments. He shall bathe his body in water and then put them on. We know from Exodus that Aaron was a high priest and was ordained to perform the task that the Lord had set him. This ritual ceremony happened once a year and is called Yom Kippur in Hebrew, but we may better know it as the Day of Atonement. Now, it's important to note, throughout the year, when the Israelites became aware of their sin, uh, they would daily... Uh, come to the altar here. Nope, oh, the altar's gone. Don't we? Not that altar. Um, come to the altar in the tent of meeting and present an animal for sacrifice. 
uh, this sin offering was made uh, to atone for those sins on that day. The elders of the community were to lay their hands on that animal before it was slaughtered and give it before the Lord. Amazingly, though, the Day of Atonement was given to the Israelites on the very same day that the two brothers were killed. And this day was to allow all the sin over the last year to be forgiven and even allow the high priest to come into the Holy of Holies. The Day of Atonement may sound alien to us uh, as we look at it as this ritual ceremony, but it's not as alien as we might think. If you've attended a wedding, then you also have been part of a ceremony that has rituals and symbolic vows and actions. The Day of Atonement ceremony is structured in three main stages, uh, just like our wedding ceremony is. Our modern-day wedding has a preparation stage where everyone's getting ready for the wedding ceremony. We have the heart of the ceremony stage where there's all these rituals like vows and rings and lighting and candles, and all these things are meant to... Uh, Accomplish the goal of the ceremony, making a man and a woman, in this case, become husband and wife. And finally, we have the conclusion ceremony stage, where it becomes clear that the, the ceremony has achieved its goal. I will now pronounce you husband and wife, and everyone celebrates. And the Day of Atonement has these same three stages. Uh, first, we just read in verses 3 and 4 that we have this preparation stage. The high priest must cleanse himself and put on the holy linen garments. So while he's doing that, the Israelites would be outside spending the whole day fasting and praying, uh, confessing everything, uh, every single sin that they could possibly think of, every one thing they could remember from the past year. Now, we may look at this fasting and praying all day and confessing every wrong and think, well, I, I, that seems a bit extreme. I, I've certainly not done that in the last 12 months. Maybe we think it's extreme, though, because uh, we may feel that as long as I do my best, then God's satisfied with that. And if that is where we have our starting point, um, then spending a day fasting and confessing our sins probably does sound quite extreme. But this was never the Israelites' starting point. Their, their starting point was the God who made this world made it a place where it's goodness, justice, its holiness, its love, and its mercy were all the things and should be in all things and on full display. They would call this a world of shalom, a world of peace, goodness, and happiness. This is what they longed for. And can we relate to this? I think so, can't we? Don't we also long for a world of shalom? Long for a world of peace instead of war? Love instead of hate and anger. A world where greed and lying and stealing, adultery, divorce, death and disease no longer exist. I wonder, the reason we long for a world like this is because it's the kind of world that we're made for. The truth is, we must all recognize there's a reason the world is not that way. And it's not because of God. It's because of us. It's our sinful, selfish state that saturates into the world and makes it unclean. And God is a God of life and order. He's a God of perfect cleanliness. And as such, he can't be in the presence of anything that brings death and disease and dysfunction, anything that brings defilement. 
See, the tent of meeting was like an, like an outpost of Eden in an east of Eden, broken, sinful world. And as God's home, it must be clean of anything that is of the world as it now stands. Sinning, hatred, envy, anger, murder, lying, adultery, disease, they're all seen as death and disorder. Look into your own life for a second. Maybe you can recall a time where you lied or got angry with someone. Maybe someone you trusted lied to you. Did it lead to life and order in that relationship or towards messiness, death and disorder? So we can see why God's instructions for the priests to wash their hands and feet when they came into the tent of meeting to present sin offerings was so necessary. But this gets taken up a notch on the Day of Atonement. Aaron was to wash his entire body from head to toe as a symbolic way of washing the dirt and then cleanliness of the world off him. He must also take off his priestly robes uh, that would have been very ornate and kingly looking within its own right. It would have been seen and been shown to seem to the Israelites that he has this high standing uh, as this high priest. But on this day, he would be standing in the presence of the king of kings. And it's not advisable to dress as a king when you're standing in front of the king. And so he, was put, uh, uh, he would put on these simple, hum humble, linen robes. So there's a lot for Aaron to get right here. Like, can you imagine how nervous Aaron would have been as he walked into the same throne room that Nadab and Abihu were killed in for entering just earlier that same day. Now he's up and he has to go in. You know, the fact that he could die on the spot here if he gets any of these carefully detailed instructions wrong. To get a sense, imagine that I threw a hazmat suit at you uh, and said, right, you need to go into this room over here where there's a nuclear radiation spillage. Here's the instruction manual on the hazmat suits. Put it on. Crack on, hope you don't die. You can imagine that you may check those instructions a few times. Well, instead of putting something on so you don't die, we have to take something off instead. We've got to take off the sin, death, and disorder which stains us. It stains us like soot. We get covered in it from being broken people in a broken post-Eden world. Maybe you're here today and you think, well... I'm not perfect, but I'm, I'm trying to be a good person. Uh, I think that's all that God can really ask of me. I'm sure he will see that I'm trying to be clean and right. And, and that should really be enough, right? I guess I'm trying to say is, is we can't be in God's presence without something that will act like that hazmat suit. And our best efforts to make our own just won't hold up. Every sin that we commit just pokes another hole into that paper-thin suit. And it just can't stand up to the, to the nuclear core that, it, that is God's perfect presence. So once Aaron entered, we read verse 6, that he was about to make a, he was to make a sin offering. Aaron shall offer a bull as a sin offering for himself and make atonement for himself and his house. So Aaron is an imperfect priest. So he must first atone for his own sins uh, and then that of his families before he can atone for the sins of the Israelites. 
The word atonement may be better said as at-one-ment, meaning to set at one or to reconcile. You've heard me say burnt offering, sin offering, sacrifice a few times by now. You may naturally be wondering, how, how does sacrificing a bull, verse 3, sort of cleanse, purify, and atone guilty sinners? Well, the answer lies in the role of the sacrificial blood, which has the ability to both cleanse sin and impurity. We can see the evidence of this cleansing um, when it's, it's used to cleanse the Holy of Holies in verse 14 to 16. It says, And he shall take some blood of the bull and sprinkle it with uh, his finger on the front of the mercy seat on the east side. And in front of the mercy seat he shall sprinkle some of the blood with his finger seven times. Chapter 17, verse 11, tells us how blood is used as a ransom for sinners. It says, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. If this was still the case today, then nobody would have to ask you on a Sunday afternoon what you've been up to. Uh, They could tell that you've been to church uh, just from the amount of blood that you had all over your Sunday best. So animals' lifeblood was graciously accepted by the Lord as a payment in place of the Israelites' lifeblood. And in this way, the Lord, in his perfect mercy and rescue, uh, he, he rescues sinners while still remaining perfectly just. Sacrifice was something the Lord graciously gave the Israelites and is a bold declaration that salvation comes only when God in his grace grants it. So at this stage, Aaron, the imperfect high priest, has cleansed himself and has made his sins, uh, had his sins atoned for by the lifeblood of the bull. So he can now move on to be the mediator for the Israelites who are still fervently praying outside that all is going well inside the tent. So just like in stage two of our wedding, where the ceremony is in its vows and rings uh, stage, the atonement moves on to stage two, to the heart of the ceremony stage, where certain rituals are done to accomplish the goal of the ceremony. Read uh, with me in verse seven to 10. Then he shall take the two goats and set them before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Aaron shall cast lots over the two goats, one for the Lord and the other lot for Azazel. And Aaron shall present the goat on which the lot fell for the Lord and use it as a sin offering. But the goat on which the lot fell for Azazel shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement over it. It may be sent away into the wilderness to Azazel. Up to now, all the action has been focused on Aaron and the cleansing of him and cleansing of the tent of meeting. No others are involved. We find the focus now turned to the Israelites themselves as the atonement for their sins are brought into public view for them all to witness. And as such, they are to face the reality of their sin and the need to eliminate it uh, for God to dwell with them. Aaron brings two goats outside the entrance to the tent of meetings in front of all the Israelites and before God. The casting of lots here in verse 8 was to highlight that God himself will choose which goat will be the sin offering and which goat will be for Azazel. 
natural question, who's Azazel? Well, this is best translated as the departure goat or the scapegoat. Uh, so the best reading of verse 8 would be one lot for the Lord and the other lot for the departure goat or the scapegoat. And so verse 9, the goat for the Lord will be sacrificed as a sin offering for all the sins of all the people in the same way the bull was for Aaron and his family. The lifeblood of this goat cleanses every sin that the Israelites had committed and they can relationally take one big step towards God. Now Aaron turns his attention to the Azazel or the scapegoat. <clears throat> Read with me verses 21 and 22. And Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat, confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel and all their transgressions and all their sins. And he shall put them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who is in readiness. The goat shall bear all their iniquities on itself to a remote area. And he shall let the goat go free in the wilderness. Every single sin that was committed by the Israelites, every type of defilement that happened in the camp over the last year, would be placed on the head of this goat that the Lord had chosen. All the sins that they repented of that morning, all the sins that they could bring to mind that they had committed over the last year, all the sins that they had forgotten about or hadn't even realized they committed as well, every shameful and destructive sin that they had committed towards their fellow Israelites, every one of God's Ten Commandments that they had broken, those same Ten Commandments that are under uh, that in the mercy uh, in the Ark of the Covenant under the mercy seat. If we can just flick back to that picture, thanks. Every sin was cleansed, atoned for, and the Israelites were washed clean by the blood of the first goat. The memory of these sins were then carried away by the scapegoat into the wilderness to be forgotten and removed from them forever. In the words of Psalm 103, removed as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. Unlike the joy and celebrations we see at a wedding as a man and woman become husband and wife and move closer to a more intimate relationship, the Israelites too rejoice in the grace and kindness of God who has cleansed them of all their sins and impurities and so given them a way to be closer to him in a more intimate relationship. But of course, as amazing and as gracious as this is, such as it is for fallen humans to fall into sin, before the sun even gets a chance to go down, the Israelites will have added a new stain to their freshly cleaned robes. These, these goats, the lifeblood was so precious, but as mere creatures, it could only atone once. And with fresh sins must come fresh sacrifices and fresh blood. And as their freshly cleaned robes get dirtier and dirtier, before long they were gonna, they're going to need another imperfect high priest to cleanse himself. And he will once again have to mediate between them and God with two more goats to once again take all their sins away and carry them out of sight. Now, imagine that you had a 12-year-old child You've both attended the Day, of the Day of Atonement together 12 times now. 
Your child looks up to you and asks, wouldn't it be amazing if God could find a perfect high priest that didn't need to be cleansed of his sins before interceding for us? Yes, you say. He then asks, wouldn't it be amazing if the blood of the sacrifice was precious enough to take away all our sins and clean our robes once and for all so they could never get dirty again? Yes, you say. And you say, but who could be a perfect sinless priest? Whose blood could be that precious, that perfect, that it washes away your past, present, and future sins forever? We read in John chapter 20, verse 12. Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. And if we look, we can see it. One angel here, one angel here, and in the middle is where we would find the king. The mercy seat is the holiest place God dwells, where life and order is at its purest. This tomb, empty of Jesus' body, and all Mary sees is two angels, one on each end of a stone bed. And instead of a tomb that should represent death, we get an image of the mercy seat that represents life, completely destroying death. Destroying death in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So to answer that question I asked at the beginning, how will you possibly present yourself to this king without being covered in smudges, stains, and soots? Well, the answer is you can't. But God loves you so much that he came to earth, he took on flesh, and lived as a perfect human in the man Jesus so that he could be our perfect sinless priest. God would pick the lots again and this time instead of the first goat he picked his son Jesus who placed himself on the cross. His side was pierced so your sins can be cleansed and washed away by his perfect precious blood. He became the second goat, the scapegoat and took all of your burdens, shame, iniquities on his head and carried them away into the wilderness as far as the east is from the west. So if you've done things that you're ashamed of and you think that the stain is so big that it can't be forgiven and can't be cleaned from you, then turn to Jesus and be perfectly cleansed in his blood. It's the only thing that can wash away those sinful stains. If you've been treated cruelly, if you've been abused by someone that's left you feeling ashamed, defiled, and stained, then know that in Jesus Christ's sacrifice for you, that in his blood, your dirty clothes have been washed clean. Revelation 7:14 says, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. 
He's given you a robe of pure white to stand perfectly in the presence of our Father in heaven. Our Lord and God Jesus has made a way for us sinful people to have fellowship with him through his sacrifice on the cross. Once for you, once for me, once and for all, and for all. And if you've accepted this gift, then it's a reason to be rejoiceful today. If you haven't, then as we sing and worship the next, uh, in the next 10 minutes, I invite you to do just that. But for now, let's pray. Lord God, thank you so much for uh, everything that you've done for us. That you came and became the perfect, sinless man in the name of Jesus. That you and only your blood can be precious enough and can cover all our sins, past, present, and future. And that all we must do to receive such a gift is put our trust in you. We pray now, Lord, as we go into the world that we can share this with friends and family who don't know who you are. We pray that you're with us until we meet again. In Jesus' name, amen.